Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. Indeed, we want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Damien, you're up this week. Indeed, what are you I am. bringing to the table today? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, today I have brought a book to the table for us. A whole book. Oh, yes. Nah, part of a book. Uh, In fact, it's part one of that book. The book is called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. Uh, It was edited by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Dr. Catherine K. Wilkinson. Uh, And I'm super excited to chat about this book and what we read uh, because I definitely enjoyed part one. Um, and spoiler alert, I think I'm going to suggest that we read the rest of this book because I'm mm. confident uh, the rest of it will be amazing. Um, yeah. But the so the book itself is a collection of essays and poetry written by women who are passionate about and, and write in this book about climate change and the ongoing climate crisis, uh, climate movement work, environmental policy. Uh, and environmental justice and what needs to happen to push us forward on the path towards environmental justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, like I mentioned, we read part one of this book for today's episode. Part one is called Root, and it has eight different pieces in it, uh, both, um, um, what do you call it? Essays. Essays. The word. Yeah. essays. Essays. My God. Sorry, I couldn't help you out there. You couldn't. Like, what, are you, uh, yeah. what are you going for? What's happening know. here? Both essays and poems in yeah. this one, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and these pieces in part one really do some good work to kick off the book and to yeah. center many of the issues surrounding the climate crisis and really the pressing need and, and the urgency for, uh, as I mentioned, environmental justice. So, yeah, where do you want to begin? What did you think of part one? I, so far, this is fantastic. Yes. Um, I think it does a lot to reframe some of the common narratives around climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, there's a, a chapter, section, essay, I don't know what, before Root called right. Begin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the authors, the editors drop some knowledge immediately about how a woman named Eunice Newton Foote um, is actually probably the progenitor of our understanding of climate change and climate science That's right. based on an experiment she did uh, and a paper she wrote three years prior to John Tyndall's work, who was typically credited with our understanding of climate science. Yep. Um, so it starts off immediately shifting our knowledge and understanding uh, of, of of climate right. uh, and then brings voices that consistently shift thinking about the status quo in different ways. Um, so whether that's uh, indigenous wisdom um, in one, one essay or challenges to our understanding of the climate crisis being somehow separate from crises of equity uh, to another, you know, this is a great like 40 something pages to read it um, because it varied in, in approach um, but all of it also seemed like they, it was all connected. It was. Right? It yeah. really was. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that. I'm glad you brought um, Begin mm-hmm. uh, to this as well because you know, I didn't necessarily name that. But that was a very good part of this to read and a way to kick off the book. And I certainly love the fact that this book is written all, by all women, right, and mm-hmm. sort of bringing that lens to this. And I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about 
was the fact that there was just so much in these pieces in part one that was incredibly compelling to me, right? Mm -hmm. I think every single author in each of these pieces really added to the conversation about what it is that we're experiencing across the globe, right? And how the climate crisis affects all of us. And so one of the things that stood out to me uh, and is really important um, and a really important point to note as we set the stage for any conversation and work around environmental justice was something that was in the very first piece, which was called Calling In by Shia Bastida. Uh, And she talked about how the climate justice movement isn't just young people's work, right? Or young white people's work. Um, You know, she made it clear that it's everyone's work and we have to work across generations, across race and ethnicity, and really across the globe to to do this work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's so true and so important um, to recognize as we, you know, talk about this and engage with this um, and try to save this planet of ours, right? Like all of us have to be um, engaged in this work because it's so pressing. Um, she she did some great work to put something really plainly for me and for us as readers. Um, you know, she talked about that people of people in communities of color and especially young people of color are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and that when there are climate crises, it's more difficult for communities of color, for indigenous communities to recover. Mm-hmm. Right. And and we've talked about conditions here at the table. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we know why that is. Right. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Sort of that being the very first piece and sort of setting the stage and the foundation um, uh, for us. And, and I just appreciated everything about that that piece in particular yeah that um was a was a great way to open up the book um you know once you get past begin a great way to open up this section um and so she also introduced these 10 tips for being a climate justice Mm. activist Mm -hmm. and i want to talk a lot about a little bit because they're really insightful and do a wonderful job of connecting climate justice with the work of racial and gender justice um and ultimately you know in my view collective liberation yes um, so a, a few of them here, and I'll, and I'll comment on them as we go. Don't start from scratch um, is the first one. And I think it gets right at the start of how individualized we feel in the U.S. Um, and pushes people to join coalitions and other projects instead of just figuring stuff out on right. their own. Like you don't this work is already happening. Find some people who are doing that work and join in community with them. Uh, make your activism intersectional calls on us to understand the different ways that our choices, um, our work impact the folks around us. Um, and, and also think about and center the people who get left out of decisions. Yes. Um, don't do things the patriarchal way, the racist way, or any way that excludes marginalized voices just to be efficient and fast. That's such a key piece of it because so frequently we want to do things with, urgency yes with haste yeah rightly so mm-hmm. but there are ways that that can happen that then if you're if you're not doing it intersectionally yeah. is then going to uh impact those folks um especially if you don't include them in talking with them absolutely um, about about how how to how to do this how to how to tackle this uh always convey that individual and structural change are both indisputably necessary Mm. it's not just about like my individualized carbon footprint but it's also about you know i think bp created the concept of an individualized carbon footprint so like you know bp tell me what your carbon footprint is and i'll talk about mine yes um so we can do both um 
may, uh, meet people where they're at and don't assume that everyone knows the climate crisis back and forth. So yes. uh, using plain language, helping people understand things. Um, Right, super common a lot of theme. It, a lot of it's very scientific and heady, yeah. right? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so these are just a few of the of the 10 that she shared, and I really felt it, it set the stage kind of for how to jump into this work and also how to read and learn from the rest of the book. Um, or, you know, it might be premature to say the rest of the book, um, but the rest of this section. Certainly the, the rest book. of this yeah. part, for sure. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for bringing those uh, to the table. That was a great way. That's how the sort of that part ends. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's just really good advice and really good sort of steps to take as we engage in this work. So I absolutely appreciated it. Um, one of the other things I wanted to to bring here, um, you know, there have been a number of times here on the show that we've learned more about and talked about indigenous people and indigenous communities. Most recently, right, we watched the Exterminate All the Brutes documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot in there about the impact of colonization and European colonialism on the world and on indigenous communities. And all of that was just running through my mind when I read the piece by Sherry Mitchell called Indigenous Prophecy and Mother Earth. Uh, It was great, right? And because the piece really did a deep dive into the impact of that colonization and European colonialism, uh, the impact of bias and racism in science and research, what has come of not embracing indigenous communities' views and beliefs on the land in which we inhabit, right? And yeah. all of that was just so incredibly powerful, right? Right? There was, there's a part of this piece that I absolutely wanted to bring here to the table, and I'm excited to hear your reaction to it or, or what you thought about it when you read it. Um, Sherry says this, the purposeful degrading of indigenous knowledge by mainstream governments, academics, and scientists has led to distorted ideas about our intellect and created countless stereotypical myths about our ways of knowing and being. Because indigenous peoples didn't share European European ideas about land ownership, we were considered primitive. Mm -hmm. Because we had no desire to place the sources of our survival, aka natural resources, into the stream of commerce, we were viewed as ignorant. And because our value system was based on relationships and not currency, we were believed to lack the capacity to live, quote, civilized lives. Ironically, the indigenous ways of knowing and being that European colonists saw as primitive and uncivilized are now being actively sought out to save our environment and humankind from the brink of extinction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I uh, I want to say boom roasted, but I don't yep. think <laughs> that doesn't seem like a dignified response or, or way to just analyze the brilliance of that text, of those words. Yeah. Um, but that's it, right? I mean, it's it's really wild to think about the history that we've talked about uh, around indigenous communities um, and in the context of this conversation with this book, in particular, thinking about environmental justice, to think about in the climate crisis, to think about where we are now, right? Yeah, I highlighted that section, too, because um, I, I think it really gets to the core of competition versus cooperation or mm-hmm. collaboration and the ways that individualism was yes. and is um, prized over the collective by European colonizers um, and then in the U.S. And, and you know, continues to be prized by the West, yes. Europe and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, into today. And so that I want to um, point out a, a part that you said um, already, but um, ironically, the indigenous ways of knowing and being that European colonists saw as primitive and uncivilized are now being actively sought out to save our environment yeah. 
and humankind from the brink of extinction. Yeah. And it really gets back to that point that we have to reconsider the way we do everything. Yes. Because Ooh. some of these solutions that we hear about are just bandages on an open wound. Yeah. Um, electric cars are one of these examples. Um, you know, they may not emit emissions directly from the vehicle. Right. But what about their production? Yes. The production of those vehicles. What about the charging of those vehicles? Is the electricity that's being used to um, charge the battery, is that zero emissions? Mm-hmm. Um, are we ensuring that, you know, it's zero emissions all the way through? Are we using, are we still using a capitalist competitive framework to exploit laborers and mines to dig out the resources we need to create the batteries, to create the vehicles, because then it's like it's not actually a real solution, right? Because we're not reconsidering the the ways that we are as a you know potential purchaser of that vehicle in relationship with the person who's being forced to create it, right? Through some means, um, through some ex- exploitation. Um, Electric, electric cars also don't challenge the way that we're so reliant on individualized transportation, such as cars, which Correct. was a development in the U.S. Uh, in particular um, with with the production of vehicles and um, so much. So, you know, that I, I know I went off on a tangent here no, about electric cars, but that's great. it's, it's a great all example. tied into the ways that we think about what solutions look like. Mm-hmm. And I think this is challenging that. Um, idea because you know we're just creating stuff within the systems we already have that so-called are you know that we think will help but really it's just it's just a band-aid absolutely i think that's a great um uh metaphor for it like a band-aid on an open wound right or just some way in which we're we're you're enacting a solution and you tr- you you think you can be proud of it right but it's not a th- a thought, well thought out solution, right? When you take all those other factors into play, right? When you yeah. think about how those vehicles are being charged and the admissions, and certainly then I love the connection to who's making those cars and what conditions in which there are they working. Um, I think that's some, some brilliant analysis there, right? And and so much of that that connects right back to um, what Sherry talked about in this in this part in this piece within the part. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I love that. Absolutely. Um, so there's just so much in here to, that's brilliant. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to mention, which I think I said at the start of this is that there are poems throughout the book as well, right? Yeah. Which is pretty awesome. It uh, is. uh, because I think there are folks out there who, who love and dig poetry and like to engage with all different types of media, right? So, you know, we can all learn from an essay, we can all learn from articles, right? But there is a lot to learn from from beautiful poetry, right? And so in part one alone, there are two really beautiful poems that were were great and I would encourage folks to check them out. Um, and it, it really honestly just made me super excited to continue to read this book and to see what other beautiful poems are, are in it. Yeah, I think the poems are really moving. Um... And I really liked how they kind of punctuated the emotions of the text. Ah, um, yeah. Which I think it was in the begin section, the editors point out that we're seeing young activists shift to a heart-head model of leadership. Mm. So it's not just about what we think, but it's also including what we feel and creating relationship yes. um, with one another and recognizing that that relationship is also at the core of potentially the solutions to climate yes. um, crises um, because we have to consider ourselves in relationship with the whole ecosystem around us. Yes. Um, but you know, we need that kind of shift to the head heart model, 
um, as we collectively push toward a livable future and away from further climate catastrophe. Yes. So, well, and the other thing I'll say about it is that it just makes me think about all the other pieces of media that we've consumed. And that sort of mindset, I think, is something we've seen in other things, too. Like even Mm -hmm. when we looked at uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Beyond Courts. Right. And we had Esther's story in there. Right. And that Mm -hmm. was a comic and an illustrative way to sort of educate folks and walk folks through the court system and what it looks like in a real way um, in this fictional, not really fictional story. Right. And so, you know, or the zines we've, 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 um, we've consumed here and talked about here, right? Like though that, that I love that, that head heart model and the ways in which you're educating folks and communicating information to folks um, to help folks get it Mm -hmm. any way that you can do that. It's yeah. so powerful. Well, and art plays such a role in, in yes. how we understand and interpret the, the world, whether that's poetry or, you know, the comic, um, music, all, all of that plays Absolutely. a role in how we interact with one another, uh, but also understand what it is that's happening in the world. I love it. Very good. All right. Well, if we can, let's shift our conversation and talk about application, right, and how mm-hmm. we can apply what we read and what we talked about today to our daily lives and the work that we want to do. Um, I think the brief part of this book that we read, you said it was like 40 some pages. Yeah. Um, did a really great job of reminding me of two very important things. Uh, the, the first is just the intersectionality of climate change and yeah. the climate crisis and, and what we're seeing around the globe and social justice, right? Um, there are so many ways in which these things intersect mm-hmm. and the ways that the one impacts the other and the other impacts the one, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to keep environmental justice at the forefront of our conversations about all things social justice. Um, so again, I love that we have been introduced to this book and, and we're talking about it today. Um, the other thing I'll say is that I really loved what Shia Bastida said in her piece calling in. I'm going to reference it again. Um, she said this, I quote, you don't have to know the details of the science to be part of the solution. And if you wait until you know everything, it will be too late for you to do anything. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, I mean, the application there is clear as day to me. Right. We have to act and we have to act now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of what I've been thinking about as, as application here. What about you? Yeah. Um, well, one thing I'll I'll say about, um, you know, understanding all of the science, um, is one of the things that I think I highlighted from, um, on fire, which Mm. is the Naomi Klein, um, section is that we're already one degree Celsius above pre-industrial revolution levels when we started to actually you know, collectively burn more coal and and, um, and uh, create more greenhouse gases. Um, so we've already shifted yeah. a full centimeter in 140, 150 years, whatever that time frame is, um, which is wild. And it also reminds mm-hmm. me of, um, I think it was um, a book, Astra Taylor's book. We oh, read, yeah. Um, sort of at the beginning of this year, um, where she talks about that we've already like just the, the amount of carbon we've put into the atmosphere over the last 140, 150 years um, is more combined than the amount of carbon we had put into the atmosphere, like for the history of the earth before. Right. right? So, um, or something like that, you know, I've read that 
yeah, nine months, months ago. ago. Yeah. So, um, but something like that. And so it just reminds me of all of these ways that like, yeah, you don't have to understand all of it, but like there are these little pieces of it that you can understand and grapple with and, and, and recognize that, oh, this is going to make like this, this is a problem. Yes. Right. Um, we talked about the urgency, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can hear that a stat like that, those statistics and be like, oh, shucks. Right. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Um, so, uh, my application is from a section called Reciprocity mm. by Janine Benyus, um, which I found to be super informative um, and highlights, again, the way that science can be done in a way that challenges or reinforces the status quo thinking. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing because the section points out that we knew and accepted that forests were communal in nature in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The ecosystem was cooperative. Um, and was strengthened by that cooperation. Right. But then science, the science was challenged um, by somebody else's perspective, and then it, that science was accepted and then changed the way that we manage forests mm-hmm. to the point where we believed that plants were competitive, and so we would cut down trees to make Man. space for others, yep. which ultimately was harmful to the community of the forest. Right. Um, and now mm-hmm. we've shifted mm-hmm. back to understand that trees are communicating and cooperating with one another. Um, to quote Janine Benyus here, we came to view all organisms as consumers and competitors first, including ourselves. By acknowledging the fact that communal traits are quite natural, we get to see ourselves anew. We can return to our role as nurturers, each a helper among helpers, in this planetary, planetary story of collaborative healing. So this mm-hmm. is my application. Um, yes. You know, and it's connected to the part you mentioned about action. Um, but, you know, we also have to, sh- to really take action, we have to shift our perspectives um, of our role on yes. the planet. Yes. Um, and recognize that we are part of an ecosystem. We're part of a community um, that needs to be cooperative and not competitive. Absolutely. I love that. I love that because I think there's connections of that, you know, this idea of being collaborative healers, right? And the work that we're doing with each other mm-hmm. and all the ways we talk about um, uh and have these conversations around sort of social justice and collective liberation, right? But that absolutely in this context is talking about um, our planet, right? Yeah. And what we need to do and and do now. Um, so yeah, there's connection to the action that I mentioned, um, and that that piece from this part of the book was brilliant. So mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that to the table as application. Thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, homework. Let's talk about what we want to do after we leave our conversation here today. Uh, I've got two things. Um, I mentioned it earlier. It's going to be a surprise to you. I think we need to keep reading this book. Oh. Right? Yeah, shocker. I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just so much more we can learn uh, about climate change, about the climate crisis, about environmental justice, and the work we need to do. Um, and clearly, the authors of these pieces are brilliant. Um, We've learned that just through these first 40 pages. So I think this Mm -hmm. book can be a fantastic guide for that work. Um, The other thing I'm going to suggest for homework is that we check out the website. Uh, There's a website that's associated with this book. Um, It is allwecansave.earth which I had no idea dot earth right. was, <laughs> was what top do you call level it? domain. Yes. Yeah, so a top yeah. level domain. Um, and that is such a cool ass <laughs> top uh-huh. level domain uh, for, for this context. Uh, yep. But there are a ton of additional resources connected to this book and for 
additional learning that I think would be great for us to explore a bit. So yeah, I say we do that. Yeah. Let's keep reading this book. Um, I think it can, you know, we could honestly make this a series where we continue to come back to the book for different sections. I like that. um, For conversations here. Okay. Um, You know, I loved it so far and there's uh, so much more um, of it. 300 more pages. Yes. (laughs) Um, And the website seems great too. I poked around a little bit. Um, and it seems like a really cool resource. Right. Um, I also want to shout out Adrienne Marie Brown and the section she contributed oh, called yes. What is Emergent Strategy? Yeah. Because we didn't get a chance to talk about it today. Yeah. But her work, including the book Emergent Strategy, is such an amazing way to reconsider the ways we work with one another. Yes. And how we interact with the environment, the ecosystem, um, the ways that we lead with one another. Right. Um, yeah, and so I feel so. One of the concepts she's talk about, she talks about, is a uh, murmuration. Yes, um, which is um, not directed movement, not directed leadership. It's it's a group of birds. So you see that sort of cloud of birds moving yep. in the moving together um, in the sky. That's a murmuration, uh, and so they're taking lead from one another like to the closest people near them. And yes. so they're still moving in a group, right? Even though not one of there's not one or two or, you know, a small group of them leading that group, mm-hmm. they're all sort of leading it. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like that's a good, um, metaphor for this first part where all of them feel connected. Like they're all moving slightly differently, but they're all moving together. Yes. Um, and so shout out to that. Also really good homework to look more into, uh, Adrian Marie Brown's work. Um, because she also does some brilliant, brilliant work and, and has contributed some amazing things. You know, we love Adrian Marie Brown. Yes. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. bringing her up and, and, and talking about her here and, and her piece in particular. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, my friend, you're up next week. Yeah. What are you bringing to the table in our next episode? So our next episode, I thought we'd talk about, uh, Tommy Shelby's upcoming book, not yet released yeah. called the idea of prison abolition. Uh, which is described as, quote, an incisive and sympathetic examination of the case for ending the practice of imprisonment. Um, so we do have an advanced proof copy of the book, which um, is due to be published in November uh, of this year. So, um, yeah, many thanks to Princeton University Press for uh, helping us out, sending us a couple copies for uh, review to discuss here. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be a, a really interesting discussion um, because just from skimming uh, the book a little bit, I, I don't know that we're going to totally agree with Dr. Shelby here. Yeah. Um, so I think it'll be an a, a interesting discussion to like dive into um, his arguments, his line of thinking for um, this you know, the book, the, the idea of prison abolition. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the key there at right? the idea of prison <laughs> abolition. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, we know kind of where we stand, uh, mm-hmm. on the idea of prison abolition. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Let me echo our thanks to Princeton university press for sending us these advanced copies. And, um, I, I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. Um, and, and we'll see where our conversation goes uh-huh, next week. Exactly. Yeah, very good. All right, so with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what I'm going to ask you to do, but in case you forgot, please follow us, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with everyone you know, follow us on the socials, uh, check us out on YouTube, and sign up for our email list to get notified about any new things we've got going on behind the scenes. Yes, thank you so much for listening. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. 